0: Hello, and this is Steven Siegel. I'm your host at New Books in History, and welcome back. I'm coming to you today from the shadows of the Rocky Mountains, and this must be a first on New Books in History, because we're interviewing a historian from the Arctic. So it's my great pleasure today to introduce Bathsheba Demuth she is the author of Floating Coast an environmental history of the Bering Strait published just last week in fact by Norton and Company I'm really quite thrilled to have her joining me here today So Bathsheba DeMuth is assistant professor of history and environment and society at Brown University. She is an environmental historian who specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. She has lived in Arctic communities from Eurasia to Canada, and she has earned her BA and MA from Brown University and yet another MA plus a PhD in history from the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome Bathsheba today. So um, let me begin with the story of this book. How did you come to be interested in the topic and spend all of the time that you did with um, such an amazing set of sources.
1: So this book um, really began two decades ago now, almost exactly two decades ago, actually, um, when instead of going to undergraduate like a normal 18-year-old, I convinced my parents that I should take a gap year because I didn't know what I wanted to study, and college is long and it's expensive, Um. And so I had mapped out this very ad hoc itinerary um, at a time when gap years weren't really institutionalized yet. And the first stop on this itinerary was in a little indigenous village in the Canadian Yukon called Old Crow. And my job in this village was to take care of a sled dog team for a local family who I also lived with. Um, and then my plan was that I was going to be an old crow for, I don't know, four or five months or something like that. And then I was going to go to Costa Rica and then I had some other spots on my itinerary. Um, and long story short, I have still never been to Costa Rica because I ended up staying in the Yukon for several years. Um, and a large part of why I stayed there was because my um, I just completely fell in love with being out um, in the bush, and with the kinds of skills that I was learning how to do, it's a it's a mostly subsistence community. Still, it's about two hundred people. It's a hundred miles from the nearest road, um, and I was out, you know, working with this dog team all day, every day, particularly in the winter. And so, the kind of learning how to survive in that landscape, learning how to have a relationship with these animals that I depended on, um, you know, quite literally for my life, and in many circumstances, um, was just it was pretty hard to let that go. And as I was spending time up there, I also became aware that some of the ways in which I had been taught to understand um, the way the world works, which is with a really pretty firm separation between what in the academy we call sort of the, the humanist side of things and then the, the natural or hard sciences side of things, didn't actually seem all that separate um, up in the Yukon and in the Arctic, because the environment and that, that sort of natural science as part of life is so very present um and so I really left this, you know, two years plus that I spent up there with a set of questions about the ways in which humans and the non-human world interact with each other and influence each other based on that experience, which, you know, I didn't articulate it in those terms quite when I started undergrad, um, but really have been kind of the motivating questions for me ever since, and were certainly the motivating questions by the time I got around to going to grad school.
0: I have to ask as a first question, because I'm absolutely fascinated by your itinerary going from, I think, Iowa to the Arctic, to Russia, it's really hard to follow your steps. How, how is it that you came to study the Bering Strait as a kind of dual U.S., U.S.S.R maybe even Russian imperial history, what, what is the connection between where you came from and where you end up? And how does that factor into your study of ecosystems, the relationships, as you talk about in the book, um, between how humans change nature and how the non-human world changes humans?
1: That's a great question um so there there are some intermediary steps between me at eighteen on a dog sled um and me writing this book and a big one of those was actually that after I finished college, my husband and I did peace Corps in the former Soviet Union, so we were in the Republic of Moldova for two years, and I was absolutely fascinated when I was there by the kind of remnants of the Soviet Union that were you know everywhere and that we were living in literally um and I remember thinking that you know, the kind of Soviet development model was both completely familiar in its sort of modernist overtones and absolutely different than, you know, places elsewhere I had been in the world where I had seen kind of these attempts to transform human life on a large scale. And then I realized that if I was interested in the Arctic and I was interested in sort of socialist space, I should probably study Russia because it has a lot of both, um, And so I decided when I was in Peace Corps to apply to PhD programs in history and in Russian history, um, having at that time taken exactly zero classes in Mm -hmm. Russian history, um, and not actually knowing that environmental history was a field. Um, So I had a lot of catching up to do when I got to grad school. Um, But I started learning Russian when I was in Peace Corps, so that I at least had that piece when I hit the ground um, in graduate school. And then so I applied to grad school um, to be a Russian historian. Um, So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of myself as an environmental historian at the time, um, and ended up at Berkeley and worked with uh, Yuri Sloskin, who's sort of the the one other person who's really written about Siberia um, at the, you know, kind of taking graduate student level of training. Um, And while I was kind of starting on that project, and in the earliest kind of phases of grad school, so still in coursework, Um, kind of two things happened, one of which is I actually read the first piece of environmental history I had really formally come across, um, which was Don Worcester's Rivers of Empire, um, which was you know, 30 years old at the time and absolutely blew the top off my head. And I was like, this, this is what I want to do. I've sort of finally figured out where all of my kind of questions and obsessions about people and not humans come together. Um, it's kind of amazing that it took me that long to realize that there's a whole field that's dedicated to that, but there you go. Um, and then once I started thinking about um, the Russian Far North in kind of ecological terms, I realized that the part of the Arctic that I was the most familiar with, which is, you know, on the kind of Yukon, Canada, uh, US border um, is in this region, which was part of the Russian empire. Um, The Yukon wasn't part of the Russian empire, but right across the border was. Um, And so sort of Russia had this influence there, but it's also a place that is ecologically the same um, kind of across that whole trajectory. So from, the Yukon, all the way over to the Kolemer River um, on the Russian side of the Bering Strait are ecologically really similar. So the nation-state boundary doesn't make an enormous amount of sense if you're thinking about the place in ecological rather than in national history terms. Um, And because I can already speak English, it turns into a project where I could sort of do this comparative thing right across the Bering Strait. And then I became really fascinated by the fact that no one had actually looked at the Bering Strait in these kind of historical terms before, because it's such a kind of amazing natural experiment in what it looks like to be, uh, you know, an American style capitalist or a Soviet style socialist um, in conditions that are virtually identical um, and that are home to the same animal species that are home to the same indigenous cultures. um, But then in the course of the 20th century become uh, kind of inhabited by these very different ideological systems. um, so I figured most of that out while I was in graduate school um, and then, you know, sort of proceeded to do research. I did a year of research in the U S some of which was in DC and some of which was in Alaska and elsewhere. And then a year in Russia, um, some of which was in Moscow because all Soviet right. historians end up in Moscow. Right. Um, but then right. some of it in Vladivostok and in Magadan and then up in Chukotka itself.
0: Yeah. And and I think I see a great tension between the center and the periphery i know it's something of a cliche the whole borderlands thing but you have in some ways a nation in your story which is extraordinary it um maybe even a cosmic world of beringians as you call them and i, I wonder if you might talk a little bit not just about the political records that everyone really has to gather local regional national records from the us and and in moscow as you mentioned but how did you go about collecting oral knowledge these centuries of wisdom which i i think are really adaptable to change among the yupik and the inupiat and the chukchi populations could you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah sure that's a great question um so there's a, there's a quote on the side of the Brown English department that's from Gertrude Stein that says, then there is using everything, which is kind of how I feel about my methodological approach to writing about the Bering Strait, which is it's a very large geographical space with a relatively small number of people in it at any given time. So you end up using kind of any possible source that you can get your hands on that talks about this particular place. And one of the richest sources is the histories that people within the Bering Strait have of themselves and have been telling for themselves and to themselves, you know, for, in some cases, millennia. Um, and so I I tried in the course of this to use those sources um, as much as I possibly could as a, a kind of counterpoint um, and in some ways a corrective, depending on the situation, to what was in the, the kind of more traditional Soviet and imperial Russian and American bureaucratic records. Um, And I was very fortunate in that many communities in the Bering Strait have had kind of formal oral history projects um, or have worked often starting, you know, early in the 20th century with anthropologists to record um, kind of a a whole variety of histories. So most... um, oral societies and those in the Bering Straits are included in this, differentiate between histories of things that are sort of so far back in time that they have kind of a quasi-mythical aspect to them and things that are kind of within historical time where people uh, kind of can name the generations. They know the individual people. They know when things happened, not necessarily in the sense of having a calendar date, but, you know, they know how many generations back it was. They know where events took place. Um, And so there have been these quite remarkable and really important projects to record those oral histories um, that were foundational to this book. Um, And I couldn't have written it in this form without them. Um, And I also thought it was important to use those oral histories because those are works that these communities, and there are many communities in this book. So, you know, 10 on the U.S. side of the Bering Strait, roughly, and 10 on the, the Russian side, Um, these are works that the communities have decided to put out for the public themselves. Um, So they're kind of representing their own histories to the world. Um, And because I'm working in a really large geographical area and can't go spend, you know, a year or two in each of these communities to really get a sense for what kinds of history they want made public and what kinds of history they want private, I felt much more comfortable using kind of the versions that the communities themselves have chosen to make official over time um and they're really, you know, rich, complicated, fascinating uh documents. Um and I think one of the things that was not surprising to me because I had spent very formative years amongst um which in people in the Canadian Arctic um and was quite aware of how sophisticated and precise oral knowledge is. Um But I think for people who haven't necessarily spent a lot of time around cultures that transmit their intellectual patrimony that way, um, it is surprising the degree to which things that somebody tells you in an oral form um, are very much, you know, you you can find examples or find overlaps with them in the, in the Soviet record or the American one, if you are really trying to kind of wrestle it into a particular date and time. Um, Right. So they're, they're, they're really quite subtle.
0: Yeah, and and I'm actually really struck by the multiple voices in your story. So it's never just black and white, and that's something that really impresses me. So for example, if you have a very literalist reading of missionaries, missionaries bring God, booze, literacy, disease sugar and and often no particular order and you know on the other hand again not not to have a crude bifurcation but you have witnesses to these projects by people who watch very carefully how foreigners and you are one coming in are failing at civilization Um, it's actually a phrase i think you use at one point failing at civilization So could you talk a little bit about those histories of encounters, maybe even the promises that are are made and occasionally don't work?
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that it doesn't feel black and white, because I I think that one of the the challenges with this kind of a comparative project is either um, it looking black and white in the kind of, well, the US did everything better than the Soviet Union sense, or vice versa, or... Um, you know, everything that was done by foreigners was, was terrible and nefarious. Um, and then, you know, by saying that you kind of inadvertently romanticize, you know, Beringians, um, and sort of reduce their agency by doing that. Um, so I'm glad to hear that it didn't read that way because it was a thing that I was really really concerned about in writing it, um, that it not turned into, you know, some, some sort of screed on one side or the other, because I think the story is much more complex, um, as all histories are, um, And now I'm afraid I've completely lost the train of your question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's okay. I was wondering if you could talk about these civilizational projects.
1: Yeah, so part of what fascinated me about looking at American capitalism and Soviet socialism in the Bering Strait is that um, I had one of those really rare epiphanies you have as a historian in the archives, because usually, at least for me, the archives are a place of you know, finding revelations, but not necessarily large structural insights into what you're doing, because you're just sort of churning through lots of material and trying to make sense of it. Um, But I realized at some point when I had been in the archives for over a year, that what I was witnessing for both the Americans and for the Russians and then the Soviets was kind of an attempt to come to the Arctic in order to extract energy from it and put that energy into kind of human use, uh, sort of to use in some ways that would kind of better civilization. And that both projects really had that as kind of a core impulse. But then, of course, their visions for what society should be after that are very different. Um, and that the, the you know, capitalist version is much more concerned with um, kind of ideas of liberty that are they're disconnected from the state in some ideal form, although rarely in practice. And then the Soviet version is is interested in kind of a much more radical vision of liberty, where there's sort of such material plenty that everybody is able to prosper and can therefore kind of reach their their personal enlightenment within a collective society. Um, So I was really interested in, so if if you need to extract energy from a place that doesn't have a lot, um, right? It's not a place that's going to have agriculture. It's a place that's really difficult for industry. And those are kind of the two core pillars of both, you know, capitalist development and of socialist development. You need to have the industrial revolution and you need to have the agricultural revolution. How does this work in a place that doesn't have those things easily, at least? Um, and what happens when you put them under under that kind of environmental pressure, essentially, and what I found is yeah. that in some cases, they end up, you know, these two projects end up looking like each yeah. other. Um, and in some cases, they end up being sort of the most extreme, divergent versions of each other. Um, and that that has a lot to do with the ways in which, um, you know, the foreigners coming in are able to actually manipulate the environment around them or not. Um, and sometimes they're they're more dependent on the environment than their ideologies necessarily um would intimate. And then sometimes they're actually able to really kind of carry out their, their particular goals in a place. Um, but the result of that is, is that the actual implementation of the kind of ideal versions of society that foreigners come in with are highly variable. Um, and if you happen to be Beringian, and you're sort of on the receiving end of all this, they can be um, you know, somewhere between helpful and, you know, completely disastrous, depending on the particular time and place. Right.
0: right. So I want to switch a little bit now. We've been talking too much about humans. And um, your book is an excursion into the non-human world. So you mentioned energy, and I never would have thought of that as a way to describe modernity. I think typically when I'm dealing with the modern or hyper-modern Stalin 1930s, I think about profit and production and the cult of productivity. But I think one thing I really learned from your book is the necessity of, of studying plants and animals, their sounds, their cadences, their songs. Um, I know you mentioned Moby Dick and, and some Jack London, but um, the idea of listening to the ice or hearing the sounds of the whales. Can you talk a little bit about how you integrate the non-human into this larger environmental story and sort of poly vocal history of the Bering Strait? How, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, that's another uh, example of a place where I felt like I was using every possible kind of source um, and a set of sources that aren't necessarily traditional for historians, although I think more common amongst environmental historians, um, which is quite a bit of natural science, uh, quite a bit of of actual just observation, um, depending on the species of animals that I've spent quite a bit of time with or places or environments that I've been able to observe over time. Um, And then quite a bit of it. And I think in fact, the entire orientation toward paying attention to the, the kind of agented nature of the world around us comes from the way in which Beringians, you know, the, the Chukchi and the Inupiat and the Yupik understand the world that they live in. Um, and this was also true of my host family, um, my Gwich'in host family in the Canadian Arctic, that, um, that the kind of hard line that I had grown up drawing between subjects and objects and humans and not humans was m- much, much more plastic um, and certainly the idea that humans alone have agency is just like a laughable concept if you spend very much time in the Arctic, because often you are very, very aware that your agency is quite small and of very little import in terms of whether or not you're going to make it through a given day. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, and I didn't even realize this as I was writing it, it's, it's actually taken kind of completing the book and then talking about it with people, um, that the whole orientation toward it came from living there. Um, not from a particular theoretical kind of school. It was really trying to represent and trying to communicate to people something of what it feels like to actually inhabit that place over time. Um, and it, then it does feel polyvocal and some of the, the things vocalizing aren't people. Um, but to get that on a page, I did, um, I did a lot of research in kind of animal behavior and ecology um, and used a lot of science um, and so historians of science might raise their eyebrows at this because I'm definitely not a historian of science. I'm a historian who uses science, and I think those are two really different things. Um, but I also felt for kind of both reasons of empirical accuracy and my own kind of ethical concerns that trying to communicate the capacities and actions of non-animal beings was or non-human beings was really critical to the the history I was trying to tell, and then to do that, some of the best tools we have are coming from natural scientists, um, and some of the best tools we have are coming from the you know the intellectual traditions that have been living with and observing and imagining these non-human beings for thousands of years. So some of it comes very much from um, indigenous perspectives and understandings of of the Bering Strait.
0: Yeah, uh, I and I, I wonder if. I might add something to that as sort of a follow-up. I was really struck by your descriptions of whalers and the whaling industry and and the industrialization of that process. Um, But not just whales, also walruses, caribou, reindeer, Arctic foxes. How do they write history?
1: I mean, I think think one way and the easiest way to see how non-human animals write history is the ways in which they bump into to people. And so they, they leave a trace in the archive. Um, and so I certainly used lots of those. Um, another way that they certainly try to write their own histories is by changing their behaviors in response to people. Um, and you can see this very clearly with the bowhead whales that you know, kind of clearly change the way in which they interact with the, the kind of tall ship. Moby-Dick style whalers that come from New England in the middle of the 19th century um, and, you know, kind of develop a set of adaptations to try to mitigate the kind of killing force of those ships and are successful for a couple of years in the 1850s um, before the whalers figure out um, kind of workarounds. Um, And so I think that's a way in which the whales are writing their own history, right? They're very much trying to kind of preserve a space for themselves to continue their culture, um, and culture is not my word. Um, it's actually a word that's used right. by um, Hal Whitehead and some other cetacean biologists. Um, I would, I don't think as a historian I would actually feel comfortable using that word unless I had had somebody coming from the natural sciences. But um, there's a lot of people working in animal behavior that are starting to think about animal emotion in addition to animal cognition and animal culture um, in addition to just sort of social behavior behavior. Um, and whales are one of the places where that's really rich. Um, But you can see it in wolves and in foxes and in in walruses also, um, that are the animals that seem like they're communicating ways of being and ways of managing the landscapes that they're living in between generations and not just uh, through genetic uh, transmission. Um, So I think that's one way in which kind of animals are sort of writing their own histories. It's it's also possible that whales are singing about it. Who knows? Um, I wish I wish we could translate what they're talking about.
0: <laughs> um, um, right? Hum, hum, trill. I think you have marvelous descriptions: hum, trill, honk, rasp, groan. I'm sure I'm missing something. Yeah, yeah. no, they're they're
1: amazing. And you know, some of these animals, the, some of the bowheads live for two centuries. So I wish I could interview them. It would be great. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And, and actually the, that was something I wanted to ask because y- you do talk about um, cetacean bodies and how whales choose to die. This is a, a fascinating thing. I I had thought about it a little bit in relation to buffaloes. After all, I, I live in Colorado. Um, but how, how does that happen? And maybe even how did you notice this? Because as a historian, it seems incredibly important given the um, dependency on the environment and the fact that you yourself in traveling there are trying to learn not how to die. This is a big theme in your book, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, so that the idea that um, an animal that you're hunting gives itself rather than it being sort of a, a question of um, conquering it or, you know, the, the kind of... Narrative that comes from sort of elite European aristocratic hunting traditions that have then, in various ways, kind of assimilated into a American mainstream hunting society um, is much more common in many indigenous societies, and including those in the in the Bering Strait. Um, and particularly with whales, it emerges from a, a set of observations of particular behaviors on the part of bowheads, um, which. Um, Yupik and Inupiaq hunters have observed the ways in which you know whales will surface you know near a whaleboat and sometimes will kind of hang out around a whaleboat and sometimes do this for an hour or more um, but will always be outside of the harpooner's range so you're not physically able to kill it you move your whaleboat the whaleboat moves the whale and so there's kind of this this dance back and forth. And then at some point, the whale will either dive and just kind of disappear, move off, or the whale will surface on the side of the whale boat next to the person holding the harpoon. So it's usually on the right-hand side of the boat. Um, and some of these hunters will describe how whales will even come up and touch, you know, the, they'll kind of knock into the left-hand side of the boat. So they're really close. Um, and they're obviously observing what's going on in some way. Um, and the understanding of this uh, for Yupik, Yupik hunters is that what the whales are doing is kind of assessing whether or not the people who are out there hunting them are worthy um, of dying for. Um, and so that the kind of the act of the whale dying is, is a gift to the community and is a gift to hunters whose kind of moral comportment has been such that they're worthy, um, which is, of course, a really different way of understanding the relationship between yourself and an animal that you have to kill in order to eat um, than one in which you're You know, trying to kill as many as possible in order to make a wage, or one that you're trying to kill as many as possible in order to meet the Soviet quota, um, or kind of whatever those other systems might bring in. Um, So, some of what I was trying to do contrast the ways in which, you know, societies that have for a very, very long time required living off the death of other animals. And in the Arctic, this is unescapable because you cannot become a vegetarian. Um, I mean, you, you could now, you'd have to fly in all your food and it would be very expensive and you'd burn a lot of fossil fuels. But historically, it hasn't even been an option. Um, so how, you know, what is the kind of ethical corpus that has developed around societies that, that understand themselves to be dependent on these animals, rather than understanding those animals as a resource that you just take from until perhaps there are no more out there to, to harvest?
0: Yeah. And I think back to the politics for a moment, you mentioned the dueling consciousnesses. I'm not sure that's the right word, but consciousness by both markets and plans um, markets in the sense of American or U S capitalist rapacity. I, I'm not sure what to call it, but plans also in the sense of Soviet five-year plans and tallies and quotas and um especially in the context of harvesting i think those quotas or tallies become something almost profane um more than dickens satanic mills or or, you know dostoevsky's notes from underground i i wonder if you might talk about that consciousness, because it it seems to relate to the energy that you're describing as the essence of politics or the harnessing of of, of energy.
1: Yeah. And that was, I think, one of the things that I found really um, illuminating about being able to look at the United States and the Soviet Union in parallel with each other and rather than in isolation and not in parallel in kind of a Cold War sense, like they're not openly in competition, it's not a diplomatic story for the most part, it's just one of kind of what what do these two systems look like operationally um, is that the the degree to which they're very much um, both based on kind of ideas of endless growth. Um, and obviously if you kind of dig into the, the sort of granular history of either capitalism or socialism, there's lots of debate about how much growth and when growth and you know, how much is too much, perhaps, but, you know, at the end of the day, the way of assessing the health of a society, and you can hear it on the news every night is what is the NASDAQ doing? Is the GDP going up? And of course, the Soviet Union had its own version of that, which was kind of this accelerated planning where, you know, if last year we killed 372 whales, well, that means next year we can kill, you know, 480 whales. Um, If you kill 520 whales, that's even better. Um, and that, you know, kind of both of them are, are sort of using their capacity to pull in energy and other resources as the bottom line for assessing the health of a society. When, you know, that's that's just a value judgment, right? There's lots of ways of assessing whether or not a society is truly healthy and people within it are leaving meaningful lives. Um, and some of that, of course, is going to require having access to sufficient material you know, life to to build houses and and do things like that, but it kind of goes beyond that. I think for both the capitalist and socialist systems in this case, um, and becomes growth for its own sake. And one of the things I found really interesting is that the U.S. style capitalism, you know, it wants overall growth in the Arctic, but is completely happy to have kind of the locus of that growth move around. So, you know, one year it might be coming from foxes because they're very in vogue and everyone's wearing fox stoles in the 1920s. Um, and then, you know, the next year that might completely disappear. And there's sort of no concern on the part of the the society as a whole to really look after the people and the places that get left behind when the market just moves on. Whereas the the sort of socialist emphasis which, you know, you can kind of see it coming from this desire to make everyone equal, also wants to make every space in the Soviet Union kind of the equal level of extractive capacity kind of come out of it. Um, and that that actually makes the, the two look kind of different in practice. And I think it makes the Soviet Union's kind of um, appetites toward parts of, of the Arctic move more quickly. Um, it's not that the capitalism isn't just as rapacious. It's just, it's sort of more... Um, it moves around more. Um, and this, the Soviet system is really concerned about sort of making reindeer maximally productive and whales maximally productive and doing both of them simultaneously. Right, simultaneously.
0: Was there a point in time when uh, the uh, sort of Soviet ecological consciousness changed? And this is my way of exiting from the industrial conversation about industrial modernity and, and maybe utilitarianism you know, there, there's kind of a high water mark for the territorialized sovereign state. Um, Charles Meyer talks about this, the Harvard historian, from roughly the 1840s to maybe the 1970s. Is there a change that happens somewhere? Is it Rachel Carson who inaugurates the change or Amnesty International? or How, how does it work among the communities that you've been studying?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I think there is, you can see, certainly in the United States by the late 1960s and 1970s, a kind of sense of um, a global or extra state concern with the environment. And you see elements of that in the Soviet Union also. Um, One of the most interesting things I found is that, uh, for for some particular resources within the Soviet Union, and particularly for walruses um, and some other Arctic mammals that I actually don't talk about in the book, like polar bears, that consciousness kind of came before that wave of global um, environmental concern, it's kind of bolstered by it by the end of the 1950s, when, you know, after Stalin has died, and it becomes a lot easier for scientists to move internationally. And they, they start to realize that they're in dialogue with people, you know, elsewhere in the Arctic and elsewhere in the world who are concerned about species loss and potential extinction and things like that. Um, but it seems like you know, in in the Soviet case, as in the American case, there is a capacity for people to recognize their activities as destructive and to sort of turn the values of the system that they're within to actually address that. Um, And I was, I was really relieved, honestly, to find at least one case where that's really clearly what happened, because it, um, you know, it means that these aren't just kind of ideological dead ends where we're completely stuck with one way of thinking that's so inflexible and so total that we cannot imagine relationships with walruses or any other kind of resource that is slightly more amenable to, you know, the lives of those other animals or, or other spaces or ecologies. Um, so I think that, you know, yes, there there is that realization in, in the Soviet Union. There is that realization in the United States. Um, and to me, there's actually something almost more honest about the way that the Soviet Union confronted environmental damage in that they didn't have the capacity. My next question. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean that the um you know the United States sort of gets an environmental consciousness at the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s and passes all of this really wonderful legislation that we should fight for absolutely and I you know, it's now actually quite imperiled, so should, we should really fight for it, like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. These are great things. Uh, but it also happens at the moment when the U.S. is deindustrializing and moving its kind of manufacturing bases outside of the United States. So all of that nasty pollution becomes someone else's problem while American consumption just goes up and up and up. So it really decouples the, the kind of costs of production from um, the capacity to consume it. And I think that the Soviet Union just for most of its industries, doesn't do that. Um, their citizens are really living with what it looks like to have a kind of massively industrialized economy that's moving toward providing more consumer goods over time, um, obviously less in the Soviet case than in the American one but um, and I think that that you know some of the work done by other historians and not by me looking at the ways in which dissatisfaction with Pollution within the Soviet Union is kind of a contributing factor to the ways in which people think about
0: um, the the kind of failures of the system. Is something that the U.S. just doesn't have to confront. Yeah, and and actually, I think my question is is also about the records that you found in the collections by especially Russian and Soviet ethnographers. So. You know, on the one hand, you've got um, anthropologists and ethnographers. On the other, you have uh, the establishment scientists who are researching climatology and oceanography and and other things. Um, Maybe, could you talk a little bit about those records and the collections and and especially the ethnographic work? Did that enable you to develop certain character? characters in the story. Um, how did you do that? And I know you feature a lot of them. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so particularly on the Russian side, uh, there's an ethnographer who was active there. He was a, a an exile during the Tsarist period named Valdemar Bogoraz, um, who spent a lot of time with the Chukchi and then is kind of foundational in the creation of the Committee of the North, which is this kind of group um, that's formed in the in the late 20s and then kind of into the 1930s, is in charge of developing the, you know, quote, small peoples of the Russian Arctic. Um, and so he his work with Chukchi people is extremely detailed. His, his book called The Chukchi is, I think it's like 800 pages long. Um, and so that that was a really critical uh, piece of kind of understanding the late 19th, early 20th century. But then Bogoraz himself is kind of a character um, because he's there at this really transitional moment, um, kind of moving out of the Tsarist period. He has, you know, obviously not a lot of buy-in with the Tsars, given that he's exiled to Chukotka for his <laughs> his beliefs, but he's also not a Bolshevik um, entirely, but he kind of gets, you know, interested in the in the Bolshevik project oh, wow. because he sees it as as something that can really kind of um, sort of do the things that the Tsarist system was failing to do in Chukotka, which is, you know, bring schools and bring hospitals and, you know, kind of consistent... Um, services like that. Um, so he ends up being a figure um, just because he's he's really kind of in a fascinating position. Um, and, you know, by the middle of the 1930s, he has a very kind of gradual approach to how he imagines the sort of socialist missionizing um, in Chukwipka. And, you know, by 1935, 36, you know gradualism is really kind of on the wane and you know he's he kind of lives through that whole cycle of the the early purges he's not actually purged but um so figures like that were really important to trying to have some you know not not just whales talking but also some some people you who know, really came through
0: um and as far as the environment of commodification went um since you mentioned the purges Um, Can you talk about what what happened to the shamans, for example, the, um, the traditions of shamanism. So uh, you did mention that some of them had been victims of the purges. Um, Can you tell us about the significance of that?
1: Yeah, there's kind of two trajectories in the ways, uh, you know, to generalize quite a bit in the ways in which um, collectivization and the purges look in Chukotka. Um, And it, it kind of breaks down along geographical lines. So there are Yupik and Chukchi people who live along the coast, um, and have kind of more or less settled communities. Um, there's some moving around, but, but much more closely to, to stationary communities, um, and hunt sea mammals. And then there are Chukchi people who live in the interior of Chukotka who are fully dependent on reindeer, domestic reindeer, um, And collectivization along the coast tended to be relatively peaceful, um, in large part, I think, because most Yupik and Chukchi communities on the coast were essentially collectivists to begin with. So what the Soviets were asking for, you know, sharing what you've hunted amongst each other, you know, those kind of things was not a huge imposition. Um, And then it's clear that some Yupik became really, you know, staunch Bolshevik believers. Um, one of the sources I have is a is an autobiography, you know, written by a young man who kind That's of really becomes a full-on Bolshevik, does a lot of work kind of working in communities to convince his fellow Yupik uh, men and women to become part of this project. Um, and he sees it in this autobiography in very kind of concrete terms. It's, you know, the Soviets say that if we build a collective farm, we will have access to the tools that make hunting better. Um, and if we can hunt better, then we won't go hungry in the winter. Um, you know, It's actually kind of a caloric interpretation of what the Soviet Union can provide um, that, that this young man, Malo, was, was kind of taking from, um, from what the Soviets were saying. And this is really different than what happens out on the tundra amongst the Chukchi, um, the reindeer herders who own their reindeer as private property, um, and were really disinterested in handing over their reindeer to uh, collective farms. Um, disinterested to the point that some of them would kill their reindeer rather than do it, or would commit suicide rather than participate, or in kind of open armed rebellion with the Soviet state um, for for decades, um, actually. In some ways, I think this piece of Chukotka is sort of the last place to become Soviet, and it doesn't really happen until after the Second World War. Um and part of what's at stake there is is kind of the religious practices of, you know, both Yupik and Inupiaq people, and whether are and Chukchi people, and whether or not you can do it in in public, whether or not it's sort of recognized. And obviously, the Soviet state is not interested in shamanism being, you know, kind of a, a public piece of how people conduct themselves. Um, so people who were openly practicing shamans started to face. You know penalties. And in in the Chukchi communities were arrested and imprisoned pretty frequently.
0: Okay. Um, so I've been leading you with way too many leading questions. And, and now I, I wanted to ask you about Beringia and the sort of larger world. Um, you say at one point that the contradiction of existing in Beringia is that in order to live something some being is always dying. So could you tell, maybe talk about Beringia as a local place and maybe Beringia as an ecosystem and a, a planetary place? What, what is it that we can learn about the inescapability of lifespans and life cycles from the area across the international borderline?
1: So maybe where I should have started in terms of talking about the place in general. Um, I think beringia is interesting because it it seems um, on the one hand to be, you know, as W.H. Auden called it altogether elsewhere. Like, you know, it's up there, it's frozen, it's distant, it's far away. Um, but I think that the ways in which Beringian ecosystems operate and actually the role of the Beringian ecosystem globally mean that it's not altogether elsewhere and that there are, there are pieces of it that are very present and that we can learn a lot by paying attention to. Um, I think the place that we can learn something is because in Beringia, the, the land is significantly less biologically productive than in a temperate zone. So it's much harder for plants to turn sunlight into tissue. Um, because it's cold, because there's permafrost in the soil, uh, because of the ways in which there are, you know, long summers, but then no light during the winter. Um, this means that there's sort of less energy available um, on land. And this also means that all of the, the kind of adaptations of humans and other animals and other organisms generally is on a slightly finer um, margin, right? The difference between, you know, a good year and a bad year is really slight in the Arctic, and particularly on the Arctic land. So, you know, a half a degree warming for reindeer can be extremely difficult in a way that is not necessarily the same in a temperate location. Um, So I think part of it is that the the Arctic just gives you these relationships and really stark relief, and particularly the, the ways in which the kind of cyclical patterns of population growth and decline amongst animal populations and plant communities um, intersect with human ones because those those margins are fine enough that you can kind of isolate um, particular factors so that that for me, as an environmental historian was really useful uh, about this place
0: and Are you working on another Arctic project right now or the far north or Siberia or anything like that what What is it that you're working on now? So right
1: now and right now as of like two weeks ago, so it's very new, um, what I'm working on is a history of the Yukon River watershed. Um, and in some ways, it's a project that goes back to my interest in comparing things because the Yukon River watershed, it's like the third largest river system in North America. so it's quite vast um, and it cuts through a whole different set of indigenous homelands. Um, And then in the 19th, well, 18th and 19th century is kind of cut between the Russian empire and the British empire. And then in the 20th century becomes kind of a borderland between the United States and Canada. Um, But all along this system that ecologically speaking is quite shared and kind of refers back and forth. So you can see my interests kind of continuing um, in doing the comparative thing. But what I'm really interested in along this kind of watershed and through the last 250 years or so is the ways in which people's ideas about rights, um, and particularly legal rights for and to, um, non-human things. So rights to timber, rights to control certain kinds of animal populations, rights to water and things like that, um, have kind of changed and played out and layered on top of each other because they're really different ideas about, you know, what, what rights nature has, right? Are they only ever given by people? Are they intrinsic, um, and rights isn't even the word that many indigenous societies would use, and they have other kind of ways of imagining um, the future orientation and the moral capacities and the, the kind of need to being that um, non-human things have. Um, it also means that I get to go back to kind of my old stomping grounds in the Yukon, so that that's not a small piece of my interest here because I have, you know, two decades of ties with parts of the Yukon watershed.
0: We've been speaking with Bathsheba DeMuth, Professor of History at Brown University, and she is the author of Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, published by Norton this year. Um, Let me thank you, Bathsheba, for joining us today on the Newbergs Network.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen.